I was 24 years old at the time. And a year and a half later, I was elected to District 19 and the first Latina, but also the youngest Latina in the country. This was before AOC, right? This is before all of that. So I, I share that not because, not because I'm bragging. I share that because I want our, our generation to really step up and for Latinos and, and immigrants and Peruvians to really be inspired. Some of us really do care. I know that there's a lot of apathy. A lot of people are disillusioned and I understand that, but it's easy to complain and it's very, very difficult to do something about it. And so if you're inspired, I'm here to tell you, you can do it. We need you because we're only going to be a more perfect union if government really reflects what society actually looks like. And we need people of color. We need folks with immigrant backgrounds. And I, I feel very privileged to be in this position. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Welcome, Marise Morales, to Peruvians of USA. I want to express how grateful I am to you for taking the time to meet with me today and to talk about your immigrant story, your professional trajectory, and talk about your political career as well. So would you like to introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Absolutely. Thank you so much to, to you, Natalie, and to Peruvians of USA for having me this afternoon, looking forward to your questions. And I'm Mariste Morales. My mom is from Lambayeque. My, my dad is from Chimbote. Just very proud to be Peruvian American and, and, and finding my way to contribute to society and to, and to this awesome country that's given us so many great, great blessings. Yes. So we're going to start with some fun questions to get warmed up. And hopefully these are fun for you as well. And I have a very particular reason why I'm asking this question first. Okay. What is your favorite political show or movie about politics? Yeah. So in terms of politics, I would say House of Cards before all the controversy that the now led us to many progressives boycotting the issue. But I'm very driven by societal problems and trying to figure out ways to fix them. So right now I'm actually watching Dope Sick, talking about the opioid crisis in this country. And I love it because it touches on how the judicial process works, but also how money can buy a lot of power into not only corrupting regulators, but also lobbying the legislature so that you can create the laws to allow you to continue doing something that you shouldn't have been doing to begin with. So that's very issue-driven, issue I would say. Okay. Yeah, I was very as curious because sometimes when you are of a, of a particular profession, you like the shows or you don't like the shows because then you see everything that's actually not accurate yeah. with the shows. <laughs> but I was wondering if you were going to say The West Wing because I actually am a, a fan of The West Wing. I was when I was younger and I was like, oh, I wonder if she's stupid. It's okay that you didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was in Peru for for when the West Wing came out. So that's true. That's I true. had to catch up later on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's age well, but sometimes I still watch the reruns. And my other question was, do you have a favorite uh, political figure either in the U.S. and Peru or worldwide that you think is doing great things? I know that could be a controversial question because nobody's perfect and we're not asking for somebody who's perfect. But in general, like, is there yeah. some or even a lawyer or, right, or a justice that you look up to? Yeah, several. I would say definitely in the Elizabeth Warren camp. I love her story because she she came from a humble upbringing and she used the family crises that she went through to really uh, motivate the, the reasons why she first became an educator and then she went into the law. And that really informed a lot of her uh, policymaking and, and legislation. And one of the things is she she teaches and she taught bankruptcy law. And uh, so that's something that speaks to the crises that my family experienced during my my time and growing up. We experienced two filings of bankruptcy in my family, first with my father and then with my with my with my mother in response to the housing bubble and how loan sharks really targeted immigrant families. So Elizabeth Warren is definitely somebody that I look up to. Additionally, obviously, Barack Obama, I was an undergrad, I was an 18 year old, I had just gotten back from Peru. And definitely his race going from the legislature to then just skyrocketing into the US Senate and then running for president at a very young age. Uh, and then also just his ability to ad adapt into different cultures, being uh, African American, but of an African immigrant father, and then also mother, white mother from, from Kentucky, but then also having lived in Indonesia, he it just, his way of connecting with humans, I think is really what, what, what I'm drawn to. And then in terms of justices, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I mean, may she rest in peace. She is to me just the embodiment of a, not just the intellect, but the humanity that I would love to aspire to have at some point. And just, just throwing herself into the law, I think for the betterment of, of all, all people and for folks that may not, not be aware, it's because of her that we acknowledge gender discrimination in our case law and in our constitution. So definitely a hero of mine. And of course, Sonia Sotomayor being the first Latina justice on the, on the Supreme Court. So. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I definitely resonate with a lot of what you said, particularly the bankruptcy experience that your family went through. My family also went through that during the housing bubble. My parents ended up losing their home. And that actually made me more mindful of like financial literacy and how in our community we we're not really knowledgeable how the financial service industry works here in the U.S. And so it's one of my passion areas to sort of try to educate our community about that, too. So just from my own experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So yeah. let's transition a little bit to your Peruvian side. What is your favorite Peruvian dish? Oh, my gosh. OK. Hands down. Seco. Like I said, my mom is from the north, so we love all, all of our, our Norteño food. But I'll give you guys a little secret that I'm not I'm not proud of. I'm not a ceviche person. I don't know why. I've, of course, at any, whenever I speak about Peruvian food, I'm always like ceviche, ceviche. I can uh, me gusta mucho el tiradito. Like my my mom is a, she her specialty is tiradito. So definitely enjoy that. 
And then my favorite Peruvian brunch, of course, panco chicharrón con su camote frito y su salsita. So very, very fond of that nice. on a Sunday, Sunday morning. Yeah. That's my favorite Sunday brunch too. Yeah, for sure. And my mom is from the north. My mom is from Cajamarca. So not, not the same. Which part oh, is your mom yeah. from again? Lambayeque. Lambayeque. Okay, you're in the coast. I, yeah, but it, I, I want to, I'm biased towards northern food, Peruvian northern yeah. food being the best, better food. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <Peru>. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that you were in Peru and I read your bio. And so you came to the U.S. when you were around 17, 18 year old, 18 year old. So you came at an older age, right? Than some of, some of the people in the diaspora who came when they were a lot younger, I guess like what, it, what was that experience like? What was something that you took for granted in Peru that when you got here, you were like, oh, wait, this is, this is something I took for granted in Peru that I missed. And then also, what were your initial thoughts about being here? Because you were a teenager and the cusp of being an adult, right? So... Yeah. So I like to say I, I was a flip-flop immigrant because I was born in the U.S. and then I went to Peru ages 12 to 17. And then, but also while my while we were waiting for my mom's papers, we spent, when I was ages, ages four to six, I, we spent some time in Peru and it was during the time of, the, the time of terrorism. And so I experienced, for folks that maybe didn't live this, but in, in the 90s, in parts of the provinces of, of Peru, the way that the population was controlled was by they would cut off the water or they would cut off electricity at a certain time. So to this day, I have to, if the water isn't boiling or burning me, I cannot take a shower. And why is that? Because at six o'clock, our water was cut off. And so my mom would, you know, she would, she would boil, she would boil some water and, and then she would bathe me and my sisters. I was like, okay, get in there. And so it's something that Obviously, now as an adult, I was like, wow, like I, it really makes me reflect upon some of the things that, that we experienced as a, as a Peruvian population. And then later on, when I came in, came back as a teenager, that's where I went to, I went to an all-girl French Catholic high school in Lima, San Jose Cluny. And so, and I've, I never, I never, I never took Peru for granted. I, I still keep it with me very much. And I, every chance I get, I try to go back. I, I used to go at least once a year. All my girlfriends are now having babies or, and so before that it would be, it would be like bridal showers or bachelorettes. And so I, I try to go as much as possible, but obviously, and I, and I feel extremely Peruvian and I, and I, I'm blessed enough that I live in a community in here in Montgomery County where second to the Salvadoran community, the largest community is of, of immigrants are Peruvians. So I, when I need, when I need my fix, like, well, I don't to eat menu, but obviously the warmth of the people and just, I would say, but I miss a lot from just being with family and loved ones is this, the sense of just the enjoyment of life without, even if our, our family members are, are less fortunate than us, because obviously this country, we got a lot of great things in this country, but we come here to work. Whereas in Peru, a lot of our, our family members may be worse off, but they're still living with just a, a sense of enjoyment of life. And at any moment in time, spontane like spontaneously, they can call up a, a cousin, call up a brother, call up a sister and just get together. And obviously those kind of spontaneous get togethers, that's, I would really say that I, that's what I miss most. Yeah, I agree with you so much. And that's something that I've been reflecting on this year. Like in Peru, it's like we know how to enjoy life, even though life is tough, right? And in here in the US, maybe because we know of the opportunities that are available, 
that we want to yeah. take it all. We want to like take as much as we can, as we can and reap all the, all, all those advantages that we sort of overwork and work a lot. And so one of the things I've been reflecting a lot is on like trying to balance that out and how can we, and the U S is just in general, is a very workaholic culture. And I think there has to be a happy medium for all yeah. of us, but yeah, that is definitely something that I admire from our Peruvian culture. Like we went through really tough times. And I think that also taught us that life is short life is short and yeah. then we should do also the things that bring us joy like spending time with family and like celebrating the small things so thank you for sharing that absolutely yeah uh, so you went to George Mason University where you got your bachelor's degree in global affairs in French you also have your master's in public policy and then you decided to go to law school to the University of Maryland Law School where you got the opportunity to work in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and so I guess can you Tell us like what motivated you to go to law school? Why did you, how did you take that step? And then also what was like your biggest takeaway from your, your work with the Inter-American Court of Human Rights? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I originally went to undergrad thinking I would end up at the United Nations or fighting poverty, like world poverty at, at the international level, which is why I chose the programs that I did. And I, and I, and having gone to a Francophone high school in Peru, I was able to test into kind of the, the higher level French courses. So I was able to second major pretty quickly. And I was able to also spend some time in, in Paris and having the language, the, the language ability was always something that was important to me because again, having had to jump from being, so I, I mentioned that I grew, that I was born here. Of course, I grew up speaking Spanish in the home. So going from ESOL to then going to Peru and then now speaking Spanish with a thick like gringa accent, I always was very aware that languages you know, having the language would be the best way to really serve people. So that's why I also had like the international perspective. And so when I went into, I ended up going, pursuing law school after writing a thesis paper for my master's program. This was in 2012 when, and I was in Northern Virginia at the time. So this is when the, when we started seeing for the first time local jurisdictions implementing federal law at the local level by using local resources what we call what we called secured communities and this happened in prince william county for the folks that are in the dc area it's probably like 40 40 minutes away from dc and that whole county has changed a lot since it was, i'm talking about like kind of what like 11 years ago but we started seeing for the first time county county government using local police to profile people who looked undocumented. I don't know what an undocumented person looks other than just being flat out racist against the Hispanic community. And so I wrote my thesis paper, my master's, my, my master's thesis paper on the effects of the deportation of parents of U.S. born children. And I started with that cohort of people just to get kind of an interest around that, that policy problem, which is a whole, uh, talking about a whole generation of, of U.S. born children whose parents could fall into deportation because of something as a simple of as a like a tail a tail light being burnt or some kind of traffic violation and so then that's when i realized we have a lot of domestic issues that i need to hone my skills on and and that's why i ended up pursuing a law degree talking about thinking about how we can implement domestic uh, so changes domestically to help our immigrant population and understanding how the constitution protects all of us regardless of status and, and again, but I always had that kind of, so immigration kind of brings the best of, of both worlds in that 
as, as humans migrating to the U.S., we have we carry all kinds of idiosyncrasies and what we represent as as an individual coming from Europe or coming from Latin America or coming from Africa. And so always had the kind of like international perspective. And that's when I pursued the fellowship, which I was able to receive. It was, it was a very competitive process because I, I, I was able to get a, a scholarship through this fellowship program and got to work at the American Court of Human Rights, where I contributed to some inter-American jurisprudence on the treatment of Afro-descendants in Latin America, and specifically the issue of Dominican-Haitians on Dominican soil not really being recognized by the Dominican government as a full Dominican citizen, even though their constitution is a copy-paste of the U.S. Constitution when it comes to citizenship through the soil. So there are two ways that we, when we talk about how one receives citizenship, if it's through birth or if it's through the, the birth of a parent who at least, at least one parent who was born on the soil. So jus solis or jus sanguini. And so the, the doctrine that we have in the U.S. is jus solis. Basically, if you're born on the soil, you're a citizen, which is, which is what I am. And in the Dominican Republic, the Constitution says the same thing, except in 2013, their Supreme Court ruled that essentially going from Jus Solis to Jus Sanguini saying if there's a Haitian Dominican who cannot prove that at least one parent was born in the soil, then they were basically rendered stateless. Basically, their citizenship was revoked. And so that led me also to my thesis paper in law school, really analyzing this idea of Jus Solis and why, why that's so important and why the founders really framed it in that way. And then just re- just recognizing that governments are are imperfect, and and the beauty of the law is that we can make those changes by really in the international community pointing out when a, a government is failing a whole community or a, in this in this in this instance a whole set of folks who were actually actually and I'm gonna I digress because I can go in and talk about this forever, but historically. Haitian Dominicans have been discriminated against, and it's mostly because of their because of because their their Afro descendancy, but also and because they they tend to be darker than Dominicans. So there's a whole racial issue there, and we know as as Peruvians that we have that we have that same racism problem and classes problem in our own country. So I my my family we we have. We have Afro descendants, descendants of, of the Incas and Spaniard and, and Portuguese and, and all, all of it. We're, we're a beautiful, we're a beautiful population that just that just really illustrates, right? Like what colonization did and et cetera, et cetera. So it's something that I was very proud to work on. And, and that's what led me to a lot of the, the policies that I work on now as a legislator as well. Yeah, and, and for our audience members who are interested in learning more about what Marisa mentioned about the Haitian Dominicans and, and their citizens, citizenship rights, there's actually Latino USA, which is a, another podcast, they did an episode on it, and I will be linking that episode to, to this because it's very interesting. And, and there are many Haitian Dominicans who are stateless. They can't even go to Haiti. They, they don't really have, I think, a birth certificate. They can't get a passport. So it's, it's a very big problem. Correct. And so I'm really, I'm really, I was fascinated when you were sharing your experience with that. But I guess the question then that that trigger was, so in the U.S., it's, it's soil-based. You were born in the U.S., you're an American. Can that ever change? And how easy would that be to change? Because just kind of thinking about the Trump presidency and how that was a bigger part of the conversation about citizenship. I am a U.S. citizen, but I was not born here. I was born in Peru and I came as a child. I guess I'm always curious, like, 
am I really a citizen? <laughs> like, will this ever be a problem for me? Like, I, I am thinking those, those those big questions, right? Like, I guess what what insights can you give us into what that would look like in the U.S.? Yeah. So, and this could be a PhD like paper, right? Um, so two things, and and just so that just so that it's an interesting answer or response to your question. So yeah, we're we're treating citizenship differently when when some, somebody immigrates to this country, and I know this as an immigration attorney. So the treatment of that citizenship, depending on and then under which statute and which law you how you receive that citizenship, it has different levels of how it can be revoked, right? But it's mostly based on fraud. So the only way that any bet that this country can take away your citizenship is if at some point, and it's really, it's really, really, really difficult to prove fraud, especially if you were, if you, you came on a family petition or you came as a child, again, it's based on, it would be based on fraud. They would have to come after you and, and charge you with some kind of fraud issue. When it comes to the constitution, right? Cause we're talking about two, two different sources of law, how we give citizenship to, to immigrants, that's, that's legislative. Congress can change that. But when it comes to the Constitution, it would be incredibly incredibly difficult to un to undo the Constitution. Essentially, the way that the frame the, the founders framed the Constitution, it was not meant to have to be rewritten or recreated. That's something that really distinguishes us from from a lot of different countries. We 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 have one constitution and that's it. You would need you would need a super majority, you need two thirds of Congress, the legislative branch, to change the constitution in any way. So that is is highly unlikely. So we're okay for right now for for at least for the next within our lifetime I would say <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> I don't know if that gives me peace or not when you were like we're okay for right now <laughs> <laughs> uh, so continuing with your professional experience in 2014 you were elected to the Maryland House of Delegates you were my understanding is the first and youngest Latina to represent the district District 19 of Montgomery County in Maryland. Congratulations. Tell me about that moment when you decided, yes, I'm going to run. And what was that process like? Yeah, so after I came back from Costa Rica, I saw another fellowship. And that was while I was still in law school, I got an opportunity to work as basically a student attorney, but counsel, really, I mean, the, the, to a senator. So there's a fellowship where you you can interview. And then so I ended up uh, working for Senator Roger Mano, he had very progressive ideals and values. And after a year and a half of working with him on immigrant rights, workers' rights, women, labor, just very progressive values, one of the delegates that he that he so his district mate flip flopped on a on marriage equality. Um, and so he had run on just LGBTQ rights, and then all of a sudden he was no longer going to vote for marriage equality. And, and so that's basically unacceptable as, as a Democrat. And so people wanted him, wanted him out. So then the Senator said to me, Marise, you have been an invaluable asset to this team. You've, you've helped me serve the district, the 19th district in, in Montgomery County. Would you consider running? And at the time I was 24 years old, was commuting back and forth from Montgomery County into Baltimore City because law school, so the all the professional schools are in in the city of Baltimore. So I was I was doing a lot of things like commuting to Annapolis, living in Montgomery County, and then having to do my clinical hours as well. It was it was all it was a blur. And so Raj said to to win, you're going to have to campaign for at least a year year and a half since you're nobody nobody knows you. 
And so I said, listen, like, I, what do I have to lose? I, I, I already have student debt. I, I have some student loans left from, so I would have had, so the, so the strategy was I would have had to graduate a semester early in order to have the free time to, 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 to campaign. And I had been involved in political campaigns beforehand. So I knew what it, what it took to run for office. It's a seven day thing. It's a full-time job. You're door knocking, you're fundraising, you're interviewing for endorsements. You are, you're everywhere all the time. You're in, at events, you're speaking, you're debating. And so I think at that point, maybe also when you're young, we're, we're almost, we're all, we feel invincible. Right. And so I remember at the time, my mother was, was, was working as a housekeeper to the daughter of somebody who we didn't know exactly who the person was, but we knew that it was somebody very important. Her name was Beth and she was a huge mentor of mine. And as I was in Senator, Senator Mano's office and I was, it was me and, and his chief of staff, we were just chit-chatting and his chief of staff, Ms. Pat, who has, has since passed, but she was talking to me about 30 years ago when she had been working for Governor Hughes and she kept saying, Hughes, Hughes, Hughes. My mother's boss was Beth Hughes, the daughter of Governor Harry Hughes. And I, we never knew that. For seven years, I knew this woman and she never told me who her father was. She's a very down to earth, very successful attorney, went to Harvard for undergrad and then went to Maryland Law. And so at the time, I'm sitting here with talking to Miss to Pat and I say, Elizabeth Hughes? And so then I, I call Beth, I, I actually go on Wikipedia and that's when I see Beth, who I've known for so long. And anyway, so I call Beth and I say to her, Senator Mano wants me to run on his ticket for a seat that has opened up. And Beth, as a daughter of a governor, of a governor said, said to me, Marisa, I know your heart, I know your values, I know your work ethic, and Maryland would be lucky to have a such a committed human that really is motivated to help and serve others. And I was like, just overwhelmed with just gratitude and, and she flat, flattered me. I was humbled by what she said. And she knew as, as the daughter of governor, what, what it would take. And yeah, I was 24 years, years old at the time. And a year and a half later, I, I was elected to District 19. And yeah, the first Latina, but also the youngest Latina in the country. This was before AOC, right? This is before all of that. So I, I share that not because, not because I'm bragging. I share that because I want our, our generation to really step up and for Latinos and, and immigrants and Peruvians to really be inspired. And, and just to like that, some of us really do care. I know there's a lot of apathy a lot of people are disillusioned and, and I understand that, but it's easy to complain and it's very, very difficult to do something about it. And so if you're inspired, I'm here to tell you, you can do it. We need you because we're only going to be a more perfect union if government really reflects what, what society actually looks like. And we need people of color. We need folks with immigrant backgrounds. And I, I feel very privileged to be in this position. Wow, that's a, a great message. And I completely want to echo that, that, yeah, it's very easy to complain and it's difficult to do something about it. And I think kind of circling back to RVG, I think she also kind of had that attitude yeah. of like, yes, there, there, there is a place for protesting and a place for being active in the streets, but she also wanted to change things in the, from the law perspective, right? Because there needs to be change from the outside and from inside the house. And so I, I think I think you kind of with your message are echoing her views. So Absolutely. During, Absolutely. 
During your time as a delegate in Annapolis, you sponsored legislation to reform the criminal justice system, protect immigrant communities, protect workers' rights, and even combat the rigged culture we have in this country. Of all of that, which is amazing work, what are you most proud of and why? Wow, that's difficult. I guess I would say that I'm proud to have changed the conversation in a lot of these places of power where as Democrats, we thought we were being progressive. We were being progressive, just, it, it, I almost feel like it was like fake progressive. It was, and so I would stand up and say, this is during the Trump years, we should be addressing every, you know, every attack that he, that this person has had against our immigrant population as Democrats, we, this, we are the party of, of the downtrodden. We are the party of helping people that are, that are coming to this country and working hard, right. To build our communities and to give more opportunity to their, to their children. And it was just, it was just crazy to me that as Democrats, we, I would have to tell leadership, why aren't you addressing this, the profiling issue? Because under, under the Trump administration, what I talked about in my, my introductory comments about the, the police profiling undocumented folks at the local level and, and, and implementing immigration federal law. During the Trump administration, we started seeing that nationwide. And so that was, so I, one of the things that we were able to bring when I was the, the primary sponsor was what we call the Trust Act, which was essentially saying, we're not going to use local resources to enforce federal law, immigration. So that should have been at the forefront of the Democratic, uh, what we call like a leadership package. So every, every session, leadership comes out with a list of like, these are our priorities. And when it came to people of color, women, so again, Trump dealing with, you guys remember the whole locker room incident with him saying, grab it, grab them by, by the pussy. I mean, that was just, and, and the Me Too movement, right? We were able to talk about that as young women in office, because remember I was, well, by then I was already probably 26, 27, but most of my colleagues were at least, at the very least 15 to 20 years older than me. So most women that served in the legislature were women that were older and remember part of the sexism and, 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 and that we live in this country and how we, what, what we equate beauty and with is also youth. So it's like the sickening kind of vicious cycle of, well, if you're old, who's really harassing you because you're not attractive? And so it was like this kind of, the women that had been there before me, a lot of them were not, they were not really jumping on the rape culture or the Me Too wagon because they didn't experience that harassment. Because, I mean, I think it was just me and Ariana. I can't tell you. I mean, I think it was Ariana Kelly and myself, the only women, maybe Janelle Wilkins, the only women that had been elected in their 20s. So the harassment that we experienced was off. And, and so, so it was bringing a whole different narrative. And then also just to bring into context as well, in my lifetime and just historically, there've only been two legislators, female legislators that were either pregnant or pumping or breastfeeding while in office. Only in our generation did we, did we experience that. That's how antiquated our, legisla our legislatures are. And they're, they're based off of an agrarian economy. So the legislative session in most states are, it's the same way. It's not the whole year. So it's January to April in Maryland. And that's when basically farmers didn't have anything. They couldn't work their, their land. So they would legislate. 
and it was mostly obviously men. And then, and then their female counterpart, whether it was a wife or a mistress, they would be their assistant, their legislative aide. And so then that's kind of the structure that I walked into when I got to Annapolis. So definitely it's changed, not just because of me, but other women. But there was some, the other legacy that I was able to leave, that I left, was that I created for the first time what we called the women's rallies. This was before the women's march, before Trump, this was 2014. And actually, maybe you guys can see the banner in the back is a poster. So we, cre- I created, I created the the lawyer, the women's rally on Lawyers Mall to talk about issues beyond domestic violence, beyond rape, which are obviously important issues. But for the longest time, whenever the women's caucus was dealing with anything, it had to be around rape and domestic violence. But women, we care about other things as well, like the economic, the women's economic agenda on equal pay parity and reproductive justice and criminal justice and just all of the issues that society deals with. And so before I got to Annapolis, again, when you talked about like women's issues, it was all, all they thought about was rape and domestic violence when society has changed so much and, and more and more women are the breadwinners in their families. They're, they're single mothers out there dealing with financial literacy, dealing with the pink tax, as we call it, being given higher insurance rates just because we're women or what have you. The list can go on, but that's something that is still there today. And every February, there is a women's rally where we talk about other issues, not just domestic violence and rape. Yeah. And I mean, the women's rally, I did not know about it. I'm definitely going to have to Google that. Thank you for sharing it. And you yeah. touched and you touched on this a few times, but I, I, I definitely want to highlight it because many of us care about national politics a lot, right? We follow the presidential election and then we kind of check out. <laughs> We check yep. out, we check out at a local, local elections. And, and part of me wants to call this episode, like local elections matter too. Can you tell us, I mean, you touched on this, but like succinctly why local elections should be in our radar, why we should care, maybe perhaps more than at the national level for our community, perhaps that sometimes we only have the bandwidth to care for national elections, but so much of the decisions that happen uh, that impact our life happens at the local level. So what your local government does for you will touch your life every single day. Um, How the schools in your community are funded, what we call Title I community, Title I schools, they tend to be in browner, more immigrant communities. Title I is for schools that have high percentages of of children living in poverty or low-income households, but also ESOL, English as a second language enrollment, as, as, as well as kids living with special needs. And so your tax, your tax dollars, yeah, you're being taxed at the federal level, right? And how much is Congress really able to do for us right now? We've been living in a, in a gridlock for at least a decade, but you're also paying state, state taxes. And those state funds, so the legislature, by the Constitution, we actually have the, the responsibility of funding every single jurisdiction, again, with your state dollars. And so then we in Annapolis send the money to your county. And then, you know, maybe depending on where you live, five or six or seven or eight or nine people, which is right now it's nine people in the county in Montgomery County, decide how your, how your money gets distributed, how much, how, how, which schools get what, what, how much the police gets, how much 
police and rescue and the ambulance, et cetera. And then everything else, our libraries, our parks, our roads, our et cetera, et cetera. So you're, from the moment that you get up to drive somewhere, if there's a pothole, if, or maybe if you're, if you would like to ditch your car and you would like to have mass transit, you want to be able to perhaps bike to your, to, to your workplace. So bike lanes, your, what we call bus rapid transit, all of those things, they're, if they're, if it's a priority of yours, then, then you should be voting for people that represent your values. Another issue that we have in the DC area is housing affordability. I mean, I mentioned that I was, how much debt I had when I ran for office. I'm a millennial. As a sitting delegate, I had, I had roommates. I lived in basements, all to be able to save up a significant down payment so that I can, that I could buy my first, my first home. And I grew up in apartments and townhouses and it was just, it was a personal decision that I, that I really wanted a single home. Now I've actually left it and rented it out because I didn't want to deal with the upkeep. And now I'm back in, in a, in a high rise apartment. But my, my point is that your life really is touched by what local government does more, more so than what Congress is doing. And, and even maybe even what the president is doing. So local, local politics is very, very important. So some may ask, why am I going from the state to the county council? Yet another reason why the more local, that's how much that's the more local it is, the more likely it's, it's touching your life. So I'm going to I'm going from I'm coming from being one of 147 legislators to one of nine. And it's almost like a mayoral race where I don't have to consult with anybody about how my district. And by the way, it's it's I'm going to be representing the highest cluster of immigrant and Latino communities in Montgomery County. I don't have to consult with anybody. It's almost like I am the mayor of my own district. I'm going to be representing 140,000 people and I get to decide how my communities will receive those funds. If, if, if it's somebody like I come from, again, my mother's a housekeeper. My father was a small business owner. I'm a small business owner. We know that immigrants tend to be, and actually an immigrant is three times more likely than a U.S. born American to start, start a business. Okay, that's the beauty of, 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 of our immigrant community is that we come here with innovative ideas and the willingness to work hard and take risks. So I'm very driven by that, right? I'm gonna make sure that we can have businesses recover from, the, from, from what, all the closures during COVID, be it through funds to reinvest in maybe their equipment or maybe taking care of a year's worth of not paying their rent or county investment to maybe make a shopping center more attractive to, to innovators, et cetera, et cetera. Also dealing with housing affordability because of my experience of having my parents having lost their home as well. And, and now you mentioned this earlier, my parents lost their home too. I mean, the fact that people cannot afford, I mean, over 400, no, it's like, I want to say the median mortgage in Montgomery County is over $475,000. I mean, for a starter home, that's a really, I mean, you're, you're talking about at least a $2,800 to $3,000 monthly mortgage payment. We're becoming more a more gentrified suburb of DC and that's unacceptable. So, I mean, the list goes on and on, but I highly, highly advise everybody who's listening to get in tune with what's happening at the local level because you, you, you your family and your children's lives are much more affected and impacted by what a body of nine people are deciding on than what folks are doing in DC. Yeah, and, and for those of you and the audience listeners in Maryland who are in District 19, just to let you, primary election is June 28th, 2022. 
and the general election is November 8th, 2022. And Marise, if anybody who's listening wants to support you, wants to get involved with your campaign, where do, can you point them to the right place where they can get involved? Absolutely. Maricemorales.com, maricemorales.com. And my name will, I'm sure you can also Google it, but my name is, my mom made up my name. So it's half Mari de Maritza C de Cesar. So it's C de Casa. Uh, people might sometimes think I'm Maria Jose. I'm not. And my mom just made up my name, maricemorales.com. And then you can go and volunteer. I'm also super accessible on social media. You can follow me on my verified account at, at Morales for Moco, or also just find me on Facebook as Marice Morales and then on Twitter also as Morales for Moco. We need a lot of help. Even if you are not in the DC area, you can help us virtually by helping us. If you were looking for, at least actually right now, we're looking for a communications director. We also need folks with policy expertise. And if you're bilingual, even, even more so. In addition to being out there and in the community, we're constantly writing policy pieces and trying to make sure that folks see us as subject matter experts in different policy areas. So the opportunities are vast. And then if you are local, if you're looking for an internship, we could really use a lot of your help, a lot of your guys' help. We're door knocking. And if you speak Spanish even more so, we will be really focusing on Spanish speaking voters and also newly registered voters. And so, yeah, we need a lot of help. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to put it to put in that plug. Sure. And I will be linking all those links and tagging you on social media so folks can reach out to you in those areas. And just to wrap up our conversation, I have a few questions from our audience that they submitted. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, cool. So we'll start with one that can be a little touchy, (laughs) a little bit sensitive. Thoughts on the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021. Yeah, no, to me, this one is a no-brainer. An attack on what is the most emblematic institution of our democracy, in my perspective, exposed the American democracy to, I mean, to future attacks. And, and this is coming, this was domestic, this is a domestic terrorist attack, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that the, that President Trump really encourage people to do this is just is, is is really unbecoming of a president and when I was in the legislature I received those attacks from a very organized effort from kind of from, from the, the Trump movement I mentioned the trust act earlier there was a period of time where I shut down my Twitter account because of the attacks that I was receiving, both online, but also they would call nonstop. This is a very organized movement. And I mentioned this because it was almost like I'm, I, I was this little legislator from Maryland at the state level. And, and this organized effort was so, in, was so intentional and, again, like it's redundant, but well-organized where they would call my office nonstop. They sh- would show up at my office in the state capitol. And so for for this to have happened at the national level, I mean, it was something that we should have been prepared to protect our, our folks in Congress from, but also to really admonish the, 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 the Trump political scheme and the Republican Party for not being more vocal about these incredible attacks to Congress. I mean, it's to me, it, it's, it's, a, it's a shameful page in our history. And I remember those days vividly. Some, I'll add my question here. I always yeah. been curious as to why the, particularly the Republican Party has not been more vocal about Trump's treason. 
to our nation and to the constitution in many ways? Is it really the fact that he holds them because of some something that we can't see, something behind the scenes, or is it his charisma as a leader? I mean, there are many reasons why people follow a leader. One could be charisma. One is you really align with that person's values. I guess like, I'm just curious, like what is your perspective on why he's holding, he has such a tight grip on some of the Republican leaders and the, to the point that they haven't even spoken against him and some things that are very obviously treason to our country. Well, I'm definitely no expert, but just from my, from my experiences and in my humble opinion, we're suffering from extreme partisanship in this country. And it, it, you can point to gerrymandering, you can point to becoming increasingly intolerant with folks who we may not naturally gravitate towards, or basically just, let's just be, let's just be blunt about it. We are okay with our racism. And, and Trump has really mastered an ability to connect with the average voter that, like you said, that aligns with his values in, in an area of the brain that really speaks to the fear that people have, the fear. And there's, there, there are political theories around this. And Hitler did this, a bunch of other authoritarian regimes did this, and it's to create an enemy, a collective enemy, so that when Trump talks to these folks, it's talking beyond, it's a psychological effect that, that he's having on these folks that really kind of perpetuates the loyalty to him. And because he has the grip, I wouldn't say that he has a grip on the Republican Party. He has a grip on the average voter who elects the Republican folks. And because we we're becoming increasing, increasingly partisan, the, the elected folks from the Republican Party, they look, they can look at their, how they're polling. And Trump is very, still very much beloved among these voters and they're becoming more and more right wing. And so it's really, it's really that the Republican electeds are beholden to their own voters that again, have been basically brainwashed by a leader that has created this public enemy of, oh, anything that's, oh, it's a critical race theory. Oh, that's wrong. Or why, does, why immigrants are the problem or blacks are criminals. And it's, it's, it's not rocket science. He's not the first Trump is not the first to have gone down this road, but it, it is very, very concerning. And then I would also add the, this other this other piece, which is that the average American is becoming increasingly less educated. We have diverted our, our funding and our tax dollars from public school systems. Teachers are not, are not getting paid what they deserve. And so then that's going to have a ripple effect on the ability of adults in this country to think critically, to be able to distinguish fake news from facts, right? Facts that list actual sources, et cetera, et cetera. So like I said, you could, we could probably write a thesis paper on this issue, but it's a fascinating one, but it's also something that's very concerning to me, which also was why I'm very passionate about education. Because if you, if, if you have a failed education system, then you're not gonna have an, an informed democratic society that is, is voting with the information that it needs to, to elect the, its proper leaders. Yeah, thank you for that perspective. And, and touching on information, my next question is kind of related to that. It's there's so many fake news platforms out there, like anybody with a YouTube channel, a social media account can be considered quote unquote news. 
what is your advice to our community, to the Peruvian diaspora on how they can stay informed with accurate information and what are some of, what are some of the sources that you trust? First, I would say, because we're avid WhatsApp users, and, and this is one of the things in my fa- in our family group chats with, with mom and dad, please don't forward things you don't know where they're coming from. Please just, just stop. Just don't forward these like, uh, you know, like, like, like Natalie said, anybody that can come up with a graphic, you know, and we, can, we don't have to go that far. We can look at the, the last, the previous elections that, we, that Peruvians just participated in, all the different, on both sides, right? The conspiracy theories against Keiko, and, and now with the current president, I mean, just, I would say, inform yourself. I can't, I mean, other than RPP over in Peru, because I haven't been there for a while, but here in the U.S., I definitely, I definitely listen to publicly funded radio. And then you can also look at who else funds that, that station or that, or that source of media. But also just, there's, there's so much information, like there's actual, there's podcasts, just like what, what you guys are doing with Peruvians of, U, of, of USA. This, there are legislators and people that are actually making these laws, they're accessible, like they're out there. I would, in, in addition to staying informed with like, you know, either the Washington Post and, and the New York Times, you can participate yourself. You can listen to, and I'm, I'm sure I'm never, this is going to fall on dead ears, but you can, there's like a Supreme Court hearing this week on abortion. You could actually listen to actual direct reporting from that. And, and so what, but the, thing, this, the problem also is that we're so overworked, right? This, and we talked about this in the beginning, we ha- are living in a burnout culture. When do we even have time to inform ourselves? So I always have WAMU and public radio on, and it's also important to look out for what's the other argument. If, if, you're be, if you're reading stuff that doesn't have, that is not illustrating the other argument, then you're listening to bias information. So learning to think critically and question everything that's being sold to you is, is definitely important for you to be able to make informed decisions for yourself. Yes. Thank you for those resources. I will also link them up in our episode description. So I mentioned that you earlier, you are a go-getter. You mentioned that you're a a business owner as well. You have your own law law practice. What would you say to your 18-year-old self? Like you've accomplished so much in such a young life. I can only imagine how you were when you were 18. Many of us, when we were 24, we were not thinking about running for office. So what would you say to your 18-year-old self? (laughs) I would say to slow down. I would say slow down. I did not get to live the average college experience. I commuted to my campus and I had, my, I was waiting tables and I had an internship and I was always, always thinking of what's next, what's next, what's next. You're, you're, you get so stuck on thinking of what's next, what's next, that you're not really in the present. And I'm just now starting to implement that myself because I it's I, I get it. We're living in very competitive time and times. People are out here collecting degrees, but life it just passes us so quickly. I'm you know I'm already getting some gray hair, but I, I really am looking forward to once I'm done with my campaign and my husband always says it's always after the campaign, after the swearing in, after I pass this law, after but no truly I'm looking forward to once I'm I'm elected to just enjoying that position and trying to find some some more balance in my life. I grew up a marinera dancer, so dancing is definitely my outlet. And I'm I'm looking to hopefully implement these the, this advice that I'm giving to you all to myself and adding some more hours to hobbies and things that relax me and, and bring me joy other than my my political career. 
Well, I really do hope that after your campaign, you take a moment to smell the roses. It's also, it's very important. And I think that's a, such a wonderful message for, I think, many of us millennials too, who right now feel perhaps overworked as well. And we're trying to reap all the benefits and from the sacrifices our parents made coming here and, and the work they do and the long hours they, they invested in us. So yeah. one of my favorite things is reading and I'm always trying to find the next book to read. So as this is my second to last question, what is your favorite book or one of your favorite books and why? Yeah. So, so there's a book and the author is escaping me, but it's it's brown is the new white and it's talking about the the progressive change in our well in our society as we become more a more mixed society we're also becoming more mixed in our values and our our politicians tend to focus on the majority of voters and so for the longest time there was a white majority of voters but now we're becoming a more brown society and so what i love about about this author is that he talks about the importance of not just focusing on those that were always voting, but looking at the, the newly registered folks and how we're and thinking of ways to expand the participation. And so this is also linked to voters' rights. I love this book because it gives me hope. I'll tell you just very briefly, when I, when I was running in 2014, I, I did not get elected by Latinos. I did not get elected by people of color. I got elected by the supermajority voters, which is they were white, old, and Jewish, and um, it's it's difficult, right, as a as a Latina or as a person of color, to try to convince somebody who already has may have prejudices against you to convince them to say, "Hey, I know you have a prejudice against me, but not only can you overlook that, but also can you can you believe in me to be able to represent you." In elected office and my year and a half of of campaigning i mean it was grueling and it was sometimes i was naive naive in that i didn't realize how a lot of white americans perceived me because we grew up thinking hey like everybody well i don't know it depends on where how you grew up but my point is that this book gives me hope in that oh because because right so the my consultant i would say to them why do i why am i only knocking on white voters door. I want to go and talk to the, the recent registered Salvadoran American or the recent registered Cameroonian American, et cetera, et cetera. I can speak to them in my language. I can be myself. I can speak in French. Da, da, da. And I kept telling, and I was told by every democratic consultant, they would say, Miss Morales, with all due respect, if you go to those doors, you will lose because, because those communities do not have the, the, the tradition or the habit of voting at state and local elections. So the, the systems in place, okay, are perpetuating that people of color uh, stay out of the process. And so this book really gave me hope because I, I, I would say to my consultants, but why would, if I go to a Latina door or if I go to an immigrant door, I'm gonna be able to connect with that person more easily than if I were to go to, to a white voter who has not, who may not have anything to connect in their story with my story. I got doors slammed on, people saying, oh, I already have a housekeeper. And what, I was raised by a housekeeper, very proudly so, but they're, they're I would say to them, just let me, don't, don't use your prejudice. Don't dismiss me because of your prejudice. Allow me to expand, right, your knowledge of what a Latina can bring to, to, to the improvement of the quality of life in your neighborhood and in our state.
so that's why I really love that book. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I'll definitely add that book to my list now. So it's Brown is the New White. And, and I Googled it just now. And it's by Steve Phillips. So yes. <laughs> so yes, I'll be yes, adding yes. that to my list. And, as, and so for our last question, any message that you have for the Peruvian diaspora here in the U.S., here in the Montgomery County area and the DMV area. I actually live in the D.C. area. So any any message awesome. that you and that you want to leave us with? Yes. Well, obviously, we're speaking in English, but encourage your family members to learn the language. It doesn't matter how old they are. Learn the language as soon as possible. Finish whatever you you started. Maybe you started a technical degree. Maybe you started a profession in, in Peru. Finish it. It doesn't matter if it if it takes you if it takes you eight months or if it takes you eight years, finish it. You, you'll be you'll be you and your family will be better off for it. And you can do it. There, there's different ways you can go through community college. There are different funding mechanisms. And obviously, the moment that you have the ability to become an LPR, so a legal permanent resident, to becoming a citizen, please register to vote. And and just let's break away from our concepts of what politics it how politics play out in our country, in Peru, and give politics a chance here you from the bottom of my heart. There, there are those of us that are serving you and we can't do it alone. There's a lot of personal sacrifice to the point where I've delayed motherhood. I've delayed a lot of things to be able to do this for the benefit of our immigrant communities because I see the hard work and I see the unfair treatment in how our tax dollars serve certain communities and leave us leave the rest of us out. That would be my message. Wow. Thank you so much, Marisa. It's been such a great honor to interview you. <laughs> and I am thrilled to see what you will continue to accomplish. And best of luck with the elections. Again, if anybody in our audience is interested in supporting Marisa, visit marisaymorales.com and you'll find all her information there. Once again, thank you so much, Marisa. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.